0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin
1: Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis.
0: The Middle Ages weren't as dark as liberal historians want you to think. Historical truth is difficult to determine. There are only two ways to discover what happened in the past. We can either read what they wrote or look at the objects that they left behind. Everything else is opinion. The people of the Middle Ages left behind many writings and objects. They left their books and copies of those from the ancient world. They left magnificent buildings, especially cathedrals, and left paintings and many objects that they used in everyday life. However, the writers of the first books about the Middle Ages saw that period as backwards. Most writers and artists of the Renaissance loved ancient Greece and Rome, and they saw the Middle Ages as a throwback to primitive life. The arrogant Renaissance intellectuals did not realize that everything they read about the ancient world had been preserved by the church during the Middle Ages. One of the reasons some Renaissance intellectuals hated the Middle Ages is because they hated the church. Those attitudes continue today. Mr. Michael Whitcraft discusses that connection in his essay, Dispelling Errors, Defending the Church, How Lies About the Middle Ages Ultimately Target the Church.
1: An old adage states, History is written by the victors. This holds true concerning modern descriptions of the Middle Ages. For centuries, revolutionary writers have striven to misrepresent every aspect of medieval Christendom. They have been so successful that accurate descriptions of those times are nearly unrecognizable from what is commonly taught. Thus, The Middle Ages have become synonymous with torture, ignorance, cruelty, and closed-mindedness. Fortunately, modern scholars have been chipping away at these misrepresentations one by one. Along these lines, Australian historian Dr. Chris Bishop published two noteworthy essays in recent years. The first is titled The Pair of Anguish, Truth, Torture, and Dark Medievalism. It demonstrates that the so-called Pair of Anguish, supposedly a medieval torture device, not only could not have been produced during the Middle Ages, but is entirely unsuitable for inflicting pain of any sort. Historians are ignorant concerning the purpose of the implement, which, at the earliest, dates to the late 16th century. Additionally, Dr. Bishop shows that the Iron Maiden— cited as a medieval invention, was an apocryphal creation of the mid-19th century. The other essay, aptly titled, Our Own Dark Hearts Re-Evaluating the Medieval Dungeon, shows that these dark underground prisons where people were sent to starve, die, and rot almost certainly did not exist during the Middle Ages. As Dr. Bishop puts it, The implement dubbed the pair of anguish consists of, quote, three or four metal lobes connected at one end by a hinge. In the earliest examples, a spring-loaded internal mechanism forces the lobes apart, and a retraction of the lobes is only possible by manipulating the spring by means of a secondary pin, unquote. Some versions lack the spring and are both opened and closed by twisting a screw. As mentioned above, no one knows the purpose of this device. Yet macabre historians were quick to imagine that it was forced into bodily orifices and then expanded, causing pain to its victims. Museums around the world and books present it in this way. Some claim that it was a popular instrument of the Inquisition, and one was even displayed at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Additionally, pop culture has spread the notion of its use as a torture device far and wide. Dr. Bishop shows how, between 2007 and 2012, the pair was presented in this light no less than three popular television shows. The problem is that no existing medieval record even mentions its existence. Furthermore, Medieval metallurgy was incapable of creating the kind of spring needed for the device to function, and trigger to release the spring is on the end of the device that would supposedly be inserted into the victim. In other words, the only way the device could be activated would be to do so before its insertion into the sufferer. This and more evidence led Dr. Bishop to conclude, certainly. The pairs were not used for torture. They are far too elegant and made with too much care for that. One could imagine them as surgical instruments, some sort of speculum perhaps, or as a device for levering open the mouth in order that a dentist might operate. But they could just as easily be shoe extenders, sock stretchers, or glove wideners." While torture undoubtedly did exist during the Middle Ages, as it did during earlier and later epochs, men of that era were not fixated on it enough to devise creative, novel, or uniquely dark means to carry it out. Nevertheless, medieval detractors are tireless in suggesting the contrary. However, their forgeries and lies have often been uncovered. For example, A device called the Iron Maiden has long been associated with medieval torture. It was a man-sized sarcophagus-shaped cabinet with two hinged doors at the front. The inside of the cabinet was covered with iron spikes. Supposedly, the victim would be placed inside the cabinets and the doors shut. The spikes on the inside were long enough to pierce him, but not long enough to provoke immediate death. Thus he would be left inside for days of bleeding and agony until his brutal end. As with the pair of anguish, there is no medieval record of such a device. Its first mention dates back to 1790. Furthermore, The infamous Iron Maiden of Nuremberg that was paraded around the globe in historic exhibitions, even making an appearance at the same 1893 Chicago World's Fair, in which the pair was displayed, is a fake that is believed to have been constructed in 1867. Others wishing to detract from the Middle Ages claim that ancient torture devices used in medieval times were invented during that era the Rack is one such example. However, history records its use as early as the 6th century before Christ. Just as lies about medieval torture devices are widespread, harrowing tales of dungeons from the Middle Ages also proliferate. Everyone has heard how prisoners were chained to the wall in dingy, dark, and underground rooms only accessible to the outside world through a small hole in the ceiling. Detainees were supposedly left in these subterranean hellholes to starve in the presence of rotting corpses of former inmates. Like this period's supposed torture devices, there is sparse evidence that these rooms existed during the Middle Ages. That is not to say that there were no prisons. However, even these were rare as confinement was not yet popular as a means of punishment. As Dr. Bishop states, For the most part, though, the decentralized, largely tribal societies of post-imperial Europe had no capacity for prisons and little need for them. Laws were typically argued before an elite council or before a congregation of peers. Culpability was decided quickly, and punishment set in place immediately. Unquote. Most prisons that did exist were in convents or monasteries and used primarily for ecclesiastical purposes. Those temporal prisons that did exist were often in castle towers, where primarily nobles were kept in conditions befitting their stations in life. Although its etymology is disputed, Dr. Bishop shows that the word dungeon is certainly related to the French word donjon, meaning the keep or most secure tower of a castle. None of this has deterred modern tour guides from claiming that any underground cellar they can find must have been a medieval dungeon. Dr. Bishop recounts a laughable experience he had along these lines. I have a particularly vivid memory of being shown one such gruesome cellar, replete with some stocks, the walls adorned with the hopeless scratchings of the poor devils who once huddled there awaiting mortification and slow death. Except that I recognized the stocks as a gauge set for cannonballs, certainly stock-like, except the holes were used for ensuring the uniform size of projectiles rather than restraining people. The markings on the wall seemed far too adroitly executed as well, and a closer inspection revealed the names to be cannon types, Saker, Culverin, and the like. Either the prisoners confided to this hell-hell had gone utterly mad and spent their last few months compulsively cataloging artillery pieces, or the room was, in reality, a gun magazine, Truth be told, When the famous Violet Le Duc made an in-depth study of medieval architecture in France, of all the castles he studied, only three had rooms that could have been used as underground detention facilities. Of these, one was almost certainly a latrine, the second probably an ice room, and the last possessed a well in its center, making its use as a prison highly unlikely. Innumerable findings like this are easily accessible to the detractors of the Middle Ages, yet this does nothing to dissuade them from propagating their lies. Summing up his conclusions about the existence of medieval dungeons, Dr. Bishop states, "...the modern concept of the medieval dungeon would seem to have very little substance in reality." We find no reference to them in medieval texts, and we find scant evidence of them in the architecture of the prisons and the castles that survive. For the most part, they would seem to be the products of the modern imagination. This then begs the question, why have tales of their existence become so widespread? Bishop argues that the medieval revival in Victorian England coincided with that period's fascination with the macabre. This led to a growing appetite for what he calls dark tourism. Thus, unscrupulous entrepreneurs who had invested in medieval tourist locations had reason to exaggerate and even fabricate stories of bloody tortures and inhumane confinement that took place on their properties. The more sinister the tales they told, the more popular their attractions became, and the more money they made. He also argues that nowadays, man feels the need to justify modern society. Therefore, he is driven to calumniate the medieval period because it is so opposed to these times. He states, That we would want to project onto our past a multiplication and intensification of such suffering speaks more to our needs for the reassurance of progress than it does to any historical reality. These are indeed astute observations. However, they are incomplete. Indeed, something more sinister is at play. To understand what this is, one must consider what the Middle Ages truly represents. It is history's greatest example of a society that, imbued with the Catholic religion, gave rise to true Catholic civilization. Both the Church and Christian civilization are diametrically opposed to modern society. Thus, the architects and promoters of the present days must besmirch the times in which they flourished. While Dr. Bishop does not emphasize this reality, he recognizes it as a factor. He calls it the politics of anti-Catholicism. Yes, hatred of the Church and the role she played in forging medieval Christendom is certainly the main motivation modern man has in calumniating this period. This role should not be underestimated. Highlighting it, the great ultramontane Donoso Cortez wrote, quote, But amid this medieval chaos, something stands. It is the immaculate spouse of our Lord, and one great success never before seen by mankind prevails. It is a second creation, worked by the Church. In the Middle Ages, only one thing seems astounding to me— And that is that this second creation, and only one thing seems adorable to me, and that is the church. Then that immaculate virgin, his church, sharing the solicitude of her divine spouse to do good, lifted the spirits of the fallen and moderated the impetus of the violent, giving to some a taste of the bread of the strong and to others the bread of the meek. Those fierce children of the North, who had humiliated and mocked Roman majesty, fell conquered by love at the feet of this defenseless virgin. After having lovingly soothed those great wraths, and after having calmed those furious tempests with her gaze alone, the church raised a monument from a ruin, an institution from a custom, a principle from an event, A law from an experience, to say it in a word, order from chaos, harmony from confusion. Pope Leo XIII expressed a similar sentiment in the encyclical Immortali Dei. Concerning the Middle Ages, His Holiness wrote There was once a time when the states were governed by the philosophy of the gospel. Then it was that the power and divine virtue of Christian wisdom had diffused itself through the laws, institutions, and morals of the people, permeating all ranks and relations of civil society. Then, too, the religion instituted by Jesus Christ, established firmly in befitting dignity, flourished everywhere, by the favor of princes and the legitimate protection of magistrates, and church and state were happily united in concord and friendly interchange of good offices. The state, constituted in this wise, bore fruits important beyond all expectation, whose remembrance is still, and always will be, in renown, Witnessed to as they are by countless proofs which can never be blotted out or ever obscured by any craft of any enemies. Christian Europe has subdued barbarous nations and changed them from a savage to a civilized condition, from superstition to true worship. It victoriously rolled back the tide of the Mohammedan conquest, retained the headship of civilization, stood forth in the front rank as the leader and teacher of all, in every branch of national culture, bestowed on the world the gift of true and many-sided liberty, and most wisely founded very numerous institutions for the solace of human suffering. And if we inquire how it was able to bring about so altered a condition of things, the answer is beyond all question— in large measure, through religion, under whose auspices so many great undertakings were set on foot, through whose aid they were brought to completion, This is why the Middle Ages is so hated and calumniated today. It is also why faithful Catholics should love it. Indeed, history is written by the victors, and it can be difficult to wade through the lies that today's seeming victors have told. This makes getting a true understanding of how medieval times really were nearly impossible. Nevertheless, there are those aspects of that society, those fruits beyond all expectation, whose remembrance is still and always will be in renown— Witnessed to as they are by countless proofs, which can never be blotted out or ever obscured by any craft of any enemies of which the Holy Father spoke. In other words, the remnants of Christendom still exist. A mere comparison between the cathedrals that grace medieval towns and the glass skyscrapers that litter the center of modern cities should suffice to demonstrate the marvels of that society and the impoverishment of this one. Furthermore, those enemies of Christendom who seem to have blotted out and obscured the fruits of the Middle Ages are working on borrowed time. Their days are numbered. When the reign of Mary foreseen by St. Louis de Montfort and so many saints comes, the victors shall be others, and a true knowledge of history is sure to follow.
0: Even in our depressing times, scholars open to inspiration provide a glimpse of the Middle Ages in all its beauty. Mr. John Horvet has read several books and discusses them in his essay, How to See the Dark Ages in a Beautiful New Light.
1: For nearly 500 years, scholars and historians have referred to anything backward and primitive as coming from the so-called Dark Ages. That term was created to refer to medieval times, which some say were mired in darkness and backwardness. Typical of this misconception is the 2020 introduction of the book World After Liberalism, Philosophers of the Radical Right, by Matthew Rose. He begins his book by asking, What comes after liberalism? We know what came before it. Oppression, ignorance, violence, and superstition. Thus, many think that everything was dark and oppressive before modernity, but everything afterward was full of freedom and light. This dark image of the past is so widespread that many assume it to be true without questioning its origins. However, modern scholars looking at the historical facts now conclude that the Dark Ages were anything but dark. In recent years, They have shed new light upon this great epoch that contributed so much to history. The history of the term Dark Ages first emerged from Protestant writers in the 17th century as a means to criticize the Roman Catholic Church the outlandish claim that the institution of the papacy concealed Christian truth for a thousand years, starting in 500 AD, when all human progress supposedly stopped. Only with the Renaissance and Protestant revolt did the world break out of these stagnant times. In 1624, English Protestant writers like George Abbott labeled what was once known as Merry Old England as the gloomy dark ages before Luther. For this reason, the term is much more popular in England and Protestant Northern Europe than in the Catholic South. Indeed, it was practically unknown in Catholic countries like France or Italy. Its usage was always much more sectarian than historical. Modern scholars no longer have the old biases of times past. They now dismiss the thousand-year reign of ignorance as unscientific. Those who do follow the science find a much different narrative. Most historians will acknowledge a short period of chaos after the Ostrogoth Odoacer ousted the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, in 476. Waves of invasions and confusions followed while the church worked to reestablish order. If there was a dark period, it was limited to the 200-year period after the fall of Rome. This transition time is now more accurately called Late Antiquity, Migration Period, and Early Middle Ages. However, as the year 800 dawned, Europe was already developing rapidly. Led by the monks, agriculture started to flourish and nations formed. New technology appeared that changed society radically for the better. By the 12th century, an explosion of energy and progress brought forth Gothic architecture, universities, hospitals, chivalry, and legal systems. Scholar Charles Homer Haskins referred to this burst of light in his 1927 classic work, The Renaissance of the 12th Century. In his book, The Medieval Machine, The Industrial Revolution of the Middle Ages, Jean Gimple claimed that men in medieval times, quote, "...introduced machinery into Europe on a scale no civilization had previously known." Despite the historical evidence of progress, the Middle Ages continued to be slandered even after the Protestant Revolt. The Enlightenment only heaped more darkness on the Middle Ages, as its philosophers shared the Protestant hatred for the Catholic Church. The dark message was the same, although the focus had changed. Its narrative claimed that the progress and wisdom of the medieval world came from the philosophers and artists of an idealized ancient Rome. These scholars dismissed the Middle Ages as the product of barbarian Goths and Vandals. The 19th century Romantics rehabilitated the medieval past by idealizing chivalry and reviving Gothic architecture. It retained something of the dark atmosphere because it served as a contrast to medieval heroic figures. This favorable, though sentimental, vision of medieval times had the advantage of creating interest in the epoch. It later prompted scholars to analyze the facts, contradicting the Dark Ages label. Modern scholarship has done much to clear the medieval name. Encyclopedia Britannica reports that, quote, the term dark ages is now rarely used by historians because of the value judgment it implies, unquote. Scholars claim the decline in living standards in the post-Roman world between the 5th to 7th centuries would more appropriately be called a transition, change, or transformation rather than a crisis. Peter Kofner. In his article on the site medievalist.net claims that quote today's historians often treat the phrase dark ages as a slur unquote he claims dozens of debunkings have appeared over the years one recent example is the book The Bright Ages by Matthew Gabriel and David M Perry which comments on the early medievalists advanced knowledge and science Kaufner cites a 2021 book review in the New York Times that states, "...modern scholars cringe at any reference to the term dark ages." Indeed, the truth about the Middle Ages and the Catholic Church's positive influence over the period has been vindicated. However, the reason is not any religious conversion— Postmodernity's break with Western civilization is so complete that its agnostic scholars look at the facts, not the old biases. Ironically, the new generation of researchers makes no judgments of values because they are told not to be judgmental of anything. While academia has abandoned the notion of the Dark Ages, today's decadent popular culture has not seen the light. Hollywood, video games, and other sources of medieval imagery keep the Middle Ages dark. Distorting history serves to distort the moral values that existed in the past. Like in the past, the continued use of the term Dark Ages is not a historical debate, but a moral one. It prolongs the animosity toward the church that began with the Protestant Revolt. The left in general insists upon ignoring historical reality even when its educational institutions present these facts. The real darkness is upon those who are blinded by their ideological hatred.
0: This concludes The Middle Ages weren't as dark as liberal historians want you to think. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.